0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Galileo Galilei. the the famous Italian scientist who was responsible for some absolutely groundbreaking and earth-shaking discoveries in the realms of uh, astronomy and physics in particular. This bloke is one of the most important scientists in history, right up there with Newton, Einstein, Hawking. I mean, Einstein and Hawking both very explicitly held him in incredibly high regard, described him as as the father of modern science. And over the next couple of weeks we're going to discover exactly why that is. He was one of the early proponents of heliocentrism. He wasn't the bloke who came up with the idea, but he certainly was a staunch, well, I say staunch. <laughs> he was a defender of it. I don't know how staunch he was. We'll we'll talk about that next week. But he backed up his views on heliocentrism with hard evidence. And this was something that really set him apart from other scientists at the time, is that he had this very strict, rigorous and evidence-based approach to scientific inquiry. And and these days, you know, when there is any sort of scientific research going on, it is taken as a given that any legitimate and, and, you know, credible scientist will use the scientific method as a a process for, for uncovering new learning. But back then, that wasn't the case. And Galileo was one of the blokes who put a lot of wind into the sails of the scientific method. And we'll talk about exactly what that looked like and how he did it and how it impacted his legacy as a scientist throughout this episode. But he wasn't just uh, a scientist in the in the theoretical sense, coming up with theories and, 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 you know, writing papers and all of that sort of stuff. No, he was actually also a very skilled engineer and inventor. He built amazingly powerful, I mean, for the time at least, amazingly powerful refracting telescopes. And he used these telescopes to examine the night sky and made a number of very important discoveries as he did so. So he wasn't just sitting there pushing a, I was going to say a pen around, but a quill around. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a quill pusher. He was out there in the trenches doing the hard yards, doing the research, doing the, uh, doing the discovery, the experimentation, all that sort of stuff, and coming up with, as I say, groundbreaking discoveries in the realm of astronomy. And I mean, I have to say as well, I don't want to bag the bloke out too much here, but he also got a fair few things wrong and they're pretty funny too. So we'll, we'll chat about that as well. But look, overall, his discoveries were so far ahead of their time, so unheard of, so controversial that he actually got in trouble for them. I mean, in particular, his defense of heliocentrism got him into a very, very hot water with the Catholic Church. We'll talk about that more next week. And this bloke paid a very steep price for his genius. He suffered through a great injustice purely for having a far-sighted gift when it came to scientific inquiry, but anyway, look, he did a lot of stuff. We'll get across all of it throughout his, his scientific career. You know, it wasn't just the discoveries that he made; it was the it wasn't just the, the theories he formulated. It was also how he got there. He was rational and focused. He was evidence-based when uh, when when investigating things and. This is why we often describe him as the father of modern science. There's a bloody good reason for this. This bloke left a massive legacy when it comes to humanity's scientific progress. His work has strongly influenced generations of scientists, from Newton to, as I say, Einstein, Hawking, even through to the scientists of today. And this week, we'll talk about his, his early career, some of the discoveries that he made to begin with. And then next week, we'll talk about the trouble that he got in and the wide-ranging consequences of the Galileo affair later on in his career. As I say, a lot to get across. Let's get to it. Jump into the first part of the story of Galileo Galilei. Here we go off down the track for part number one. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 15th of February, 1564, to Pisa. Uh, of the famous Leaning Tower in modern-day Italy, although when Galileo was born, it was part of the Duchy of Florence. Now, Galileo was the eldest child of a musician named Vincenzo Galilei and his wife, Giulia Amanati. Uh, and the two of them, they'd go on have, to have six kids together, although only four of them survived infancy. And uh, one of them, the eldest, of course, was young Galileo. And for the most of his life, in fact, this is a you know, point in history when surnames were largely optional, um, and Galileo just went by his first name for for much of his life. I mean, you know, like Madonna or Bjork, some geniuses just don't need a last name. He's just Galileo. Uh, anyway, young Galileo uh, initially was going to follow in his father's footsteps as a musician. He started learning the lute, but uh, his dad also nurtured and encouraged different a different side of Galileo's personality. He helped to instill a uh, a real questioning and sceptical nature. Galileo was a very curious kid asking questions, wanting to find out about things. And his dad encouraged this and also encouraged him to never just accept stuff at face value, to look into things, to seek the evidence, the rationale behind things. And, of course, this would be formative for the young bloke who would go on to become, become one of history's greatest scientists. The fact that his dad was there saying, no, well, don't just accept things. Ask why. Find out. Prove it. All this sort of stuff. Very uh, Very influential. On Galileo as a young man, and also meant that when uh, he was offered an education, uh, quite a good one too. Galileo really—he made the most of it. It was, you know, very obvious, very obvious, very quickly that this bloke had a fair bit of the old grey matter between his ears. Uh, he was sharp, he was intelligent, and um, he he went to school and, and and took at it with both hands. Although, the fact that he was a, a devout Catholic meant that. Uh, He very nearly ended up being part of the clergy instead, but his dad talked him out of it. He said, no, 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 get a trade, find something, you know, actually useful to do. And so instead, at the age of 16, Galileo enrolled at the University of Pisa studying medicine. But even while studying medicine, his interest in broader scientific inquiry never really died out. For instance, one day when he was at the university, he noticed a swinging chandelier that was being blown around by the wind right and it was it was swinging in arcs of different sizes the wind either picked up or died down and galileo found this fascinating i mean he would he would investigate phenomena that fascinated him at the drop of a hat and and this is a this is a famous story about him when when seeing the chandelier swing from side to side he noticed that regardless of how big the swings were how large the arc of the swing was irrespective of the distance that the the chandelier traveled it always seemed to take it the same amount of time to swing from the, from side to side. Whether the swing was large or small, the swings always seemed to take the same amount of time. And he wanted to find out if this was true. He wanted to test whether this was actually the case. And so he went home. He set up two pendulums. He set one swing on a large arc and another one on a small one. And would you look at that? They took you know the same amount of time as as one another more, more or less we now know that there's you know very slight differences that are very difficult to measure but all the same Galileo looked at that and he investigated it and I mean he didn't pick up on the very practical applications of this I mean the the timekeeping applications of uh, of pendulums of course resulted about a century or so later in Christian Haugen's building the first pendulum clock but it did show, I mean, even just noticing something like a swinging chandelier and wanting to find out more about it, it does show us that Galileo's true area of interest and his area of ultimate expertise was scientific inquiry. Now, his dad wanted to be him to be a doctor, as we say, but before long, Galileo was actually angling to change what he studied, especially after he accidentally wandered into and sat through a geometry lecture. But he's, you know, he was... On this course to to become a doctor, he had to go to his dad. He said, Dad, mate, listen, I bloody love maths, bloody love physics. I'm a huge nerd. I reckon I'm going to change my studies. And so, ultimately, his dad agreed, was supportive, and Galileo began to study mathematics and natural philosophy. And that's what back then was – I mean, that was just a sort of catch-all term for many branches of science um, – pre-scientific physics as well as chemistry zoology botany other scientific subjects and you, and you won't be surprised to learn that Galileo was very bloody good at all of this let me tell you he took to it like a duck to water and throughout his entire career really his love of mathematics was heavily influential on his approach to more or less every other aspect of uh, of the sciences that he studied he tried to tie a lot of back, a lot of things back to mathematics which certainly wasn't the uh, wasn't the norm at the time But it wasn't just the sciences that that Galileo focused on, Um, he also broadened his horizons and and tried things like art, and he ended up being such a talented painter that he took on students of his own. However, it really was his scientific career that that, that made him stand out. Throughout his studies and afterwards, he wrote papers, he invented things, he invented a type of proto-thermometer, he wrote a book on fluid mechanics... And by 1590, uh, his career has just has just completely taken off uh, when it comes to academia and, and and science and research. He was the chair of mathematics at the University of Pisa, uh, which is pretty incredible. He had lectured and, and written extensively on a range of different topics. But then on top of that, he was also, on the artistic side, an instructor at the Academy of the Arts of Drawing in Florence. So... Generally speaking, he was doing pretty bloody well for someone in his mid-twenties. However, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that uh, things did take a bit of a turn for the worse in 1591, when sadly, his old man died. And this left Galileo responsible for his younger brother, Michelangelo, not the same, you know, not the, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or the famous Renaissance artist. Um, and Michelangelo uh, was a, he was a musician, talented musician, like his old man. Although not so talented that he could avoid running up a bunch of debt, because all of a sudden now, right, Galileo is essentially financially responsible for his younger brother. has to deal with this significant financial burden of paying off his his younger brother's debts. As you know, he kept attempted to keep him in the black. Um, and his sisters, on top of that, also had expensive dowries that needed paying off. So all of a sudden, Galileo is now effectively the head of his family having to look after his younger brothers and sisters i mean that's the that's the burden of the eldest sibling I, I i certainly can well i was going to say i can relate to galileo only in so far that we are both older brothers that's that's about it that's all the similarity i have with this bloke anyway galileo he with this newfound responsibility, he didn't muck about. He was not someone who was going to shy away or shirk away from uh, from the responsibility he had to his family. And so he put his nose to the grindstone. In 1592, he relocated to Padua near Venice, and he settled at the university there. And across the eight the next 18 years, Galileo remained in Padua, and he made a lot of very important scientific uh, advances and discoveries, both theoretical and practical. And there are some suggestions that some of the reasons that Galileo worked so hard uh, in this period in his life, what was to support his family? The reasons that he tried to come up with new inventions was essentially a way to make sure that he, you know, kept his brother afloat and kept his sister's husbands happy. But whatever the case, Galileo's output, his scientific output across the next, you know, nearly two decades was just incredible. He invented a brilliant new type of military compass called a sector that could be used by gunners to calculate firing angles and gunpowder requirements. It was also very useful for surveyors and and geometrists as well. A marvelous piece of technology. Uh, He also built a new type of thermometer. And you might have seen this type of thermometer. It's not the traditional one with sort of bulb at the bottom where the mercury goes up and down. But if you've ever seen one of those fancy ones, it's like a big tube of water. And then inside, there are sort of there are glass bubbles that have different liquids in them with labels attached, and the and the the bubbles go up and down depending on the temperature outside, and that's like one way to tell what the temperature is by, by reading those labels, depending on which bubble's gone up and down. Galileo invented that. That's a that was a Galileo original, um, and and these these inventions brought him a level of financial stability, allowed him to look after his family, and also established him as a you know reasonably prominent scientist of the day, certainly not a legendary one just yet, but certainly someone who knew who knew his eggs when it came to uh, things like physics, fluid mechanics, even engineering and inventing, whatever, whatever else. And of course, he was also a gifted mathematician, and he made all sorts of mathematical discoveries that I don't really understand, but they seem to be a big deal. So good on you there, Galileo. I'm not going to embarrass you by trying to explain them on a Tin Pot History podcast. But More important than any of this to the broad sweep of history, it wasn't the individual achievements that Galileo made, and it wasn't the the inventions that he put out, it wasn't the actual things that he did, it was how he did them that is so important. His approach to scientific inquiry. This is before proper scientific experiment, experimentation. This is before a rigorous and formalized scientific method and all the rest of it. This is, this is at a time when science was, was bound up with religion and philosophy. These disciplines weren't distinct at this point. And Galileo had a lot to do with helping to separate science and religion he, he thanks to his devotion to pioneer to pioneering scientific principles and, and evidence-based research Galileo began to unpick some of the religious biases that went into scientific inquiry at this time in this part of the world anyway, I want to kind of fast forward here to the end of this period in Padua and, and get across some of the really good stuff, the stuff that was so colossally influential on the March of Scientific Progress, and, uh, and 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 this really comes down to one thing in particular, right? All the other inventions, all the other things he came up, came up with, fantastic, glad they're making money, glad that they're making a bit of a name for himself, but there was one invention with which Galileo really, really changed the world, and that is, of course, the telescope. Now, Galileo wasn't the first person to invent the telescope. The first ever patent for a telescope was submitted by a Dutch bloke whose name was Hans Lippershey. Um, he actually didn't get the patent awarded to him and didn't go on to do all that much with telescopes, particularly when compared with Galileo, which maybe is a bit of a, a bit of an unfair comparison for old man Hans there. Anyway. When Galileo heard about this new invention, when he heard about what was possible when using a convex lens and a concave eyepiece to construct this, this glorious magnifying device, a refracting telescope, I tell you what, he jumped in with both hands. By 1609, he had built a much improved version of this device, one that magnified things by about three times, right? So this is already remarkable, but it wasn't long before he improved that number, the the, the magnification, to as high as 30 times. and And- This device enabled all sorts of new scientific understanding by opening up the heavens to close and minute examination. Now, Galileo's most popular telescopes, he went on to make tons of them and and they were enormously, enormously popular, very successful piece of, uh, of engineering and invention for him. Uh, the most popular ones were the ones that magnified things by about eight or nine times. Um, and this became a very staple source of income for Galileo. Um, he, he sold them off to all sorts of people, uh, rich people who were just interested in playing around with them, merchants who could go on and sell them in far off lands for even even greater sums, and also, most importantly, sailors, the, classics, the classic naval spy glasses, nothing more than a telescope uh, that, you know, like the, like the ones that Galileo built. So he made himself a fair bit of money from them. But that wasn't, of course, the most important thing that he did with them. The most important thing that he did with them, of course, was chucking them skywards and examining what was going on in the night sky. Galileo's telescopes, they were the best in the biz. No one came close to his skill in making them at this point in time, and he used them to pursue his interest in astronomy. In late 1609, he examined the moon. ...through a telescope and, you know, he wasn't the first person to do this certainly... ...but he was the first person to make a number of very detailed observations... ...and discoveries about the moon's surface and he enumerated this. He wrote these down and enormously broadened our understanding of our lunar satellite. He recognised mountains and craters on the moon's surface. His telescopes were so effective, so powerful... ...that he even began to draw topographical maps of the moon based on his observations... And at this point in history, in this part of the world, many people believe the moon to be perfectly smooth and spherical, like a, like a celestial bowling ball. So this was groundbreaking stuff, and Galileo was already here using his telescopes to completely change our understanding of the natural world. But this is just the beginning. Because on the 7th of January in 1610, Galileo made one of the most important discoveries in the history of science. This is a discovery that would ultimately go on to revolutionize humanity's understanding of its place, not just in the solar system or even the galaxy, but in the entire universe and in existence more broadly. What was this monumental discovery, you may wonder? What was it that that Galileo uncovered that would forever change humanity's perception of itself and and our position in this universe? Well, one night, 7th January, as we said, While he was having a squiz at Jupiter, he noticed that there were three tiny stars, all in a line, right up very close to Jupiter. Now, these stars were too small and too dim to be seen by the naked eye; They they were invisible if you didn't have a telescope. But through a telescope, there they were, clear as anything. You could see them all lined up next to Jupiter. Now, Galileo, very confused by this, he's thinking, "What's going on? How are these stars so close to Jupiter? What's happening here?" So we continue to observe these stars on the following nights and and try to learn more about them. But it was on one of these following nights that something absolutely inexplicable took place. He notices he couldn't figure out what had happened. One of the stars had disappeared. It had gone, disappeared altogether. And then a few days later, it reappeared. And then, if you'll believe it, before long, there was a fourth tiny star next to Jupiter. I mean... You and I know what's going on. you, You may have already figured out exactly what's happening here. Of course, we know now that Galileo had discovered four of Jupiter's moons. And you're going, well, is that it? Boring. I mean, you know, who cares? They're just moons. We've got a moon here. Mars has moons. Jupiter has millions of moons. I mean, there's just four of them he's found. But let me tell you this. I can scarcely overstate the scientific impact of this discovery through the years. The fact that another planet had stuff orbiting it. Why? Oh boy, strap yourselves in because it is time to talk about geocentrism. While humankind has never really widely believed that Earth is flat, right, we've more or less always known and accepted that it's round. For much of history, Most believed that the Sun orbited the Earth, as did, by extension, all the other planets. Now, this is called geocentrism. The the, the Earth is at the centre, not just of the solar system, or the Earth system, I guess, but the universe. This is, I mean, humans are nothing if not solipsistic, and a lot of humans for a long time did believe that the Earth was the centre of the universe. Obviously not true, as we know these days, but back then... This was the accepted theory before Galileo came along and put so much evidence behind heliocentrism instead, although again, he wasn't the first. Uh, People like Nicholas Copernicus had begun to challenge geocentrism and began to put up new models of a a heliocentric uh, solar system. but the theory of, of geocentrism, uh, while we will talk about its association certainly with the Christian Church and the Catholic Church in particular, uh, both this week and, and much more in detail next week, it goes back well before that. It goes all the way back to Aristotle and even before that. The Aristotelian model of the cosmos puts Earth right in the center with everything else in the universe orbiting it. But now, you know, hundreds, thousands of years later, here's Galileo with clear Evidence, undeniable proof, that not everything orbited the Earth. Jupiter had four moons of its own, and these moons very clearly orbited Jupiter, not the Earth. So, why was this discovery so revolutionary? Because it demonstrated that one of the fundamental principles of the Aristotelian geocentric model was flawed. Not everything orbited the Earth. Jupiter's got moons orbiting it. What else might not actually orbit the Earth, as everyone had already assumed? We talked about the fact that Galileo was raised to question things. He was brought up with, with a, 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 a deep sense of, of, of questioning skepticism instilled in him. And he wanted more answers. If Aristotelian geos, ge, geocentrism was wrong about everything orbiting the Earth, maybe it's wrong about other things. People couldn't believe it, and many scientists and astronomers at the time just flat out refused to, but it was very difficult to refute Galileo's findings when all you needed to observe what he was saying for yourself was a telescope, which were now relatively readily available. It wasn't long before Galileo's findings were independently verified by other astronomers. Sure enough, the moons of Jupiter were found to be very, very real things, and Galileo, who was raised to question things, to have a healthy skepticism, not accept things at face value, he investigated further. He looked at the Copernican model of, of, of heliocentrism and he said, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this, what I've discovered, actually further supports the Copernican model. And maybe I can find more things that are going to support this way of looking at the world and, and, and the solar system and, and into the universe here. He didn't stop. At the moons of jupiter no he found further evidence for copernican heliocentrism while he was examining venus as well and in while looking at venus he didn't find moons no no he found something completely different he found that venus like the moon has a full set of phases now this wasn't something that was obvious unless you had access to a telescope but after examining venus through a telescope he was able to verify the fact that venus does have a full set of phases just like the moon like the moon does you know full gibbous half crescent these are the different phases. new as well there's a different phase of the moon venus also has these phases you can have venus in full gibbous half crescent new all the rest of that right and the only reason that it can have a full set of phases is because of how it orbits the sun a full set of venusian phases is impossible under a, ge- a geocentric model if the sun orbits the earth then Venus can only display half of its phases. Think about it: if Venus were between a stationary Earth and an orbiting Sun, it would only ever it would only ever show crescent or new phases because of how the Sun would shine on Venus, right? Whereas if Venus were orbiting beyond an orbiting Sun, it would only ever display gibbous or full phases because how we would see Venus with the Sun uh, in relation to it. The only way it can show a full set of phases is if Venus is sometimes between the Earth and the Sun and sometimes further away from the Earth than the Sun, which is only possible if the Earth orbits the Sun and not the other way around. Massive, absolutely massive, unbelievably massive. This is like someone coming out today and saying, oh, hey, we've discovered that the Sun is flat. Or that Mars is a square. Or we've been back to the moon and it turns out it actually is made of cheese after all. Galileo had found what really amounted to irrefutable proof that the Earth orbits the Sun. But people, of course, still found ways to refute it. One of the most amusing conclusions that astro- some astronomers came to uh, in the wake of, uh, of Galileo's discoveries here was a, a hybrid system between the two, one that was called geoheliocentrism. And under the, uh, the, under the geoheliocentric model, uh, it holds that the, while of course, as we all know, the sun orbits the earth, I mean, we take that's that's not changing. We're, we're taking, taking that as a given. While the sun orbits the earth... Other planetary bodies, such as Venus, orbit the Sun. So, kind of like how, you know, today we know that the Earth goes around the Sun, but the Moon goes around the Earth. People back then were suggesting that the Sun goes around the Earth, but then Venus goes around the Sun like a little moon of its own there. So, obviously completely incorrect, but people stuck to it. People were so stubborn in abandoning geocentrism, right, that they took to this geo-heliocentric model, right? They had to admit that uh, things can orbit other non-Earth objects like Jupiter's newly discovered moons, and this new model, it handily explained both the Jovian moons as well as the Venusian phases, while also still keeping Earth as the center of the universe. As a result of Galileo's incredible discoveries and in, in attempting to reconcile them with, uh, with geocentrism, Most astronomers actually switched over to this geoheliocentric model. I mean, astronomers as famous as Tycho Brahe, episode 80, Get Across It. These people all signed up to this, uh, this new compromise model, I guess. And I mean, you might be wondering, why were people so stubborn in abandoning geocentrism? I mean, more than a few reasons, but the most important one we're going to discuss in full next week, because in a couple of years, it's going to land Galileo in a lot of trouble with the Catholic Church. Anyway, for now, let's talk about some of the other incredible discoveries and advancements that Galileo made in the world of science with his pioneering research, newly enabled by his magnificent telescopes, as he turned them to examine other planets, such as Saturn. Now, I know and you know what Saturn looks like these days. We've got photographs of the planet to help us understand exactly what it looks like. We've got a very clear picture Big, pale yellow, rings around it, very nice to look at. Well, when Galileo first cops an eyeful of Saturn through a telescope, he can't believe it. What's going on here? It's got these sort of bright blob things on either side of it, way too big to be moons. What are these things? Oh, my goodness, we've got ourselves a triple planet system here. I mean, you can't be right about everything, right? Because of the angle that Saturn was sitting at Uh, when Galileo first observed it the two rings or the 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 rings going around it when you know the, the the wider side of the rings on either side of Saturn looked like other planets and so Galileo did get that one wrong and he was even more confused when he looked at Saturn another time and it had moved so the angle of observation was different and it actually put the rings perpendicular to his line of sight which made them look like they'd disappeared so You know, he looked at Saturn, thought it was a triple planet system, and then looked at it again another night and was like, well, where are these planets? What's going on? I don't understand this at all. I mean, you know, we're not here to knock the bloke. Who would have thought that there were, you know, great big bloody rings going around a planet? Who would have even been able to conceptualise that sort of thing at this point in history? It's not like there were illustrated charts of the solar system in his his classroom for him to examine when he was a kid. Anyway, while we're talking about planets, uh, in 1612, Galileo also observed Neptune, but he didn't realize that it was a planet. His telescopes weren't so powerful as that they could recognize Neptune as being a planet. He just thought it was a dim star. And Neptune, as a result, wouldn't be properly identified as a planet for more than 200 years, which leads to a very interesting... um, disclaimer i guess uh, that is always given when we talk about uh, a bloke called Johann gottfried galler now Galla was a 19th century astronomer who is largely credited with being the first person to properly ob- observe neptune but the way that it's often put which i find very amusing is that galler was the first person to observe neptune and know what he was looking at because, of course, he wasn't the first person to look at Neptune, but he was the first person to look at it and recognize that it was indeed a planet. And interestingly, the only reason he was able to do that is because of a number of other ma- mathematicians, Urbain Leveria, uh, John Couch Adams. These were people who, using celestial mechanical maths, predicted the fact that there would be a planet out there, pointed his telescope at it, and the rest is history. Anyway, back in the days of Galileo, he looked at Neptune, discounted that. It's just a dim star, not interested in that. And look, you can't get them all right, can you? And there's, I mean, there's one more thing I do want to talk about. While while we're talking about some of the the less spectacular results he had as a scientist, um, I want to talk about how he attempted to use the daily tides as evidence for heliocentrism. Galileo, very bravely, but also very incorrectly, theorized that Earth's tides were caused by the Earth speeding up and slowing down slightly as it span on its orbit around the sun, and that this caused water to slosh about in the seas and, op- and oceans. And he used the the long and skinny Adriatic Sea uh, to to the east of Italy as, uh, as evidence of this, as the Adriatic has quite significant tides at either end, but not really in the middle. The, sort of, the water sloshes around at each end, like kind of like a bathtub. Now, a good guess, I suppose, but again, a completely incorrect one, because as, as we know, the tides are, of course, caused by the moon. And people knew this back then, too. They'd known it for thousands of years, even by Galileo's time. So He was attempting to upset the wrong apple cart with this particular revolutionary theory. While, you know, again, we've got to credit the bloke for looking at things, not accepting them at face value, trying to find alternative explanations. Yeah, kind of um, missed the mark on this one. A little bit Galileo, old mate. He stuck with his theory, however. He considered it inarguable proof of heliocentrism. Um, But if that were actually the case, uh, it's been modelled and investigated. And if Galileo were right about the sun causing uh, the tides on Earth there would only be one high tide a day, not two. So, yeah, oops. Can't win them all. But look, as I say, we're not here to have a crack at Galileo. Absolute genius he was. Can't expect him to nail absolutely everything. Not trying to give him a hard time. And look, you know, besides the stuff we've just talked about, he was still using his telescopes to make other incredibly important discoveries. He examined not just the planets and and, and the, the stars, but the, the Milky Way, which at the time wasn't considered to be made of stars. Astronomers at the time thought it was made up of nebulae. Galileo was able to spot, using his telescopes, that the Milky Way, which, you know, if you live far enough away from a city, you can go out at night, you know, look up to the sky and you'll see this magnificent uh, carpet of, uh, of brightly glowing, what we know today to be stars, uh, spanned across the sky. But It wasn't until he examined it with a telescope that he was able to spot that the Milky Way was made up of countless tiny stars all packed closely together. I mean, I say tiny, obviously today we know that stars are massive, absolutely enormous. Even the small ones are incomprehensibly big to us, but that wasn't established back then. There were wildly incorrect guesses made as to how big stars actually were, including by Galileo himself, who... just like everyone else, couldn't conceive of just how colossal these things are. But in discovering that the Milky Way was made up of individual stars, and in spotting other undiscovered stars, invisible to the naked eye with his telescope, he was able to prove, as silly as this sounds, he was able to prove that stars around And this wasn't established knowledge. As as basic as we consider it today, they were considered these pinpricks of light far away, almost like flares in the darkness. But Galileo was able to establish firmly that stars are indeed round. And so this is just one of the many pieces of fundamental scientific knowledge that Galileo laid down and backed up with evidence, again, using his famous telescope. One final thing before we wrap up this week's episode, I want to talk about Galileo's impact on the scientific method. This is something we talked about a little bit already, about his general approach to scientific investigation, observation, and experimentation. And I've already mentioned that Galileo's work was an important part of separating science from many other areas like religion and philosophy. And much of that is due to one essay, one particular essay that he published in 1623 called Il Saggiatore, or The Assayer. Now, the Assayer was written, interestingly enough, as a response to a bloke whose name was Orazio Grassi, as he and Galileo argued back and forth about comets. Now, they were both wrong, for what it's worth, but the Assayer ended up becoming something of a scientific manifesto for Galileo, because in it, he lays out his approach to scientific inquiry, which is famously summarized by him saying that mathematics is the language Of science. A lot of scientific inquiry in Galileo's time and world was done with a religious bent designed to either support or prove orthodox Christian ideals. And Galileo rebuked this approach. He asserted that science should be ordered, it should be rigorous, it should be independent, it should be driven by observation and experimentation, it should be free from preconceived notions or assertions made without evidence. And we look at that and we go, well, yes, of course, mate, obviously. But back in Galileo's time, this wasn't fundamentally and widely accepted by scientists of the day. Galileo was one of the first to explicitly lay out an advocate for the scientific method, the central and most fundamental process behind all legitimate science, even today. And look, he wasn't the first. Certainly other scientists throughout history had described and utilized the scientific method, or or parts of it at least. But Galileo's description of an adherence to proper scientific methodology was enormously influential on the generations of scientists that came after him. And on top of all of this, the essay, as an essay was just a great read. It was witty and biting, it was designed to discredit, to, to discredit Grassi in a very entertaining way, and Galileo did himself a big favour by dedicating it to the new pope, Pope Urban VIII. Urban VIII was a supporter and a patron of Galileo's and greatly appreciated the dedication. Apparently the pope would find it enormously entertaining to, uh, to sit and read this text to, to guests at dinner. He thought it was very, very funny. And Urban VIII will be a very important character in next week's episode. So keep him in mind as a supporter, as a patron of Galileo uh, at this time when he was writing the Assayer. Uh, it is very interesting what happened between these two. But the Assayer wasn't all upside for Galileo, unfortunately, as it not only put Grassi offside, of course, but a lot of his friends in the Catholic Church. And as we head towards next week's episode to talk about the Galileo affair, He is hurtling towards a lot of trouble with the Church, with the Roman Inquisition, and ultimately with his good mate, Pope Urban VIII. But that, I'm afraid, is a story for next week. Galileo paid a heavy price for his genius, for the incredible scientific advancements he made. The world wasn't yet ready for the discoveries that he unleashed upon it, and he got into a fair bit of trouble as a result of his work. And we're going to talk about all of that and more when we get across the, well, I was going to say famous, perhaps I should say infamous Galileo Affair. We'll discuss its effects not just on poor old Galileo, but of course on the continued march of scientific progress itself. So be sure to tune in next week when we finish up the story of Galileo Galilei. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the first part of the story of Galileo Galilei. And as I say, we'll be back next week to conclude it and, of course, get across the Galileo Affair, which is a very interesting, very unfortunate piece of scientific and religious history. But I do hope you'll join me there to hear all about it. Until then, of course, wrapping up the episode with all the boring housekeeping stuff, history.net, contact form there if you want to get in touch with some feedback or an episode idea or two. Thank you so much to all the people getting in touch. Again, apologies I can't get back to you. Just a question of volume at this stage. Uh, and links are also on the website to things like the merch shop where you can uh, snag yourself some Half House History merch. And the Patreon special thank you go out to all the Patreon listeners, the people supporting the show financially. If you want to join their exalted ranks, gain access to early uh, early access to episodes, show notes, uh, uncut episodes, all sorts of stuff there. Patreon-only exclusive merch. You can do it at patreon.com slash history. Um, But that is that. Looking forward to your company next week as we wrap up the story of Galileo. Until then, leaving with a question, of course, posed about Galileo on Reddit. This one comes to us from Reddit historian Rhett S, who asks, When Galileo forced the Earth to begin orbiting the sun, did people notice the change of direction? Or was it so fast that people didn't realise anything was happening?